Today we're going to be back in Hebrews, and we're going to be in chapter 10, uh, 19 through 39. Uh, your Pew Bible, page 946, if you want to look at it and uh, follow along. And we're going to be talking about the Christian's privilege, okay? So we've talked about how the people of the Old Testament had to make sacrifices when they approached God, okay? They could not approach him without making sacrifices. The Jewish priests would have to enter the holy place once a year to pray for the people. And, and that ended when but the death of Christ provided, his, provided a way for us now to enter God's presence without any more sacrifices. No more sacrifices have to be made. That's good news. That is really good news because that throws work-based theology out the window. That I could earn salvation. You couldn't even be good enough to earn salvation. And you might think, well, I'm a pretty good person. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. See, Jesus said something when he was dying. The last words he said, he said, it is finished. And what that means is you can't take away from what he's done and you can't add to it. And this is why Hebrews really was being written to a bunch of believers that said they were believers but then started worshipping and going to the temple and making sacrifices. Thinking that they had to continue to live the way they did before. But Christ had paid the price. Christ has become our sacrifice. Now we can pray directly to God because of what Christ did. This is, this is amazing, really, that we, if we actually stood in the presence of God, our sinful human self, we would just be burned to pieces. But we can talk to God for one simple reason, because God doesn't see your sinful nature. He sees Jesus' righteousness on your life. He doesn't see all of your mistakes when he looks at you. He sees Jesus' life. Jesus' righteousness is imparted onto you. Not because you deserved it, but because you get it. See, Jeremiah 33 3 said, Call to me and I will answer you. This is a promise for today. That's why I said prayer is so important. Prayer is so important. We need to understand that. That that our lives revolve around prayer. Talking to God. Call to me and I will answer. And will tell you great and hidden things. That you have not known. See the great God of the universe. He made everything. Is open to our prayers. I think that's amazing. I think we, we don't even realize how great that is. That our God wants to listen to our whiny butts. See, that's a privilege. 
And the, the fact that not only he wants us to talk to him, but he answers us. Like the most loving father would answer a child. Yes, no, maybe later. Because he knows what's best for you. I mean, when I was having kids, I would not say to... If my, 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 one of my three children came to... i t- tell you what, if my grandchild, Canaan, came to me and said, Hey, Papa, can I have a can of Mountain Dew before I go to bed? I won't give him... Well, sometimes I do, because I, I, right before he goes home. But, but, but if he asked me if he could have Mountain Dew right before he went, bed, went, went to bed, I'd say, No, you don't need Mountain Dew. That, that, that kid's on Red Bull and he doesn't even know what Red Bull is. I mean, so I wouldn't do that to him, so the answer would be no, okay? I mean, if, if, you, if your kid comes to you, have a swim pool. I've never had a swim pool, but if I had a swim pool and my kid could at bedtime says, Hey, Daddy, can I go swimming? I would say, No, not, not today, son or daughter. I'd say, But when we get up, maybe, maybe we can go Tomorrow. See, that's what I mean. That's how a loving father would answer his children. That's how God answers us when he talks to us in prayer. He says, yes, no, maybe later. He answers every single prayer you lift up to him. See, because our access is achieved. He, Jesus has achieved access Verse 19 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. You see, through Christ's blood, we can come into the presence of God. There's no other way to come into the presence of God unless you are washed with the blood that he shed. That's the only thing that makes you clean. The priest could enter the holy place only once a year to pray for the people. But because of what Christ has done, we get to enter his presence any time we want. We don't have to wait for that year for the priest to go and and represent us anymore. You can check out of this sermon right now and start talking to God. And he's going to listen. Ephesians 3.12 says this, In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We can have confidence that he is going to listen to us. Verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. See, before the priest approached God, Jesus tore that curtain down. And now we get to approach God Personally, there's no curtain between us and God. There's nothing dividing us, separating us from God. Not because we did anything, because Christ did it. John 10.9 says, 
I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. We only can go through him. We can't sneak around the back and break in the window, or we can't sneak around the back and jump over the fence. There's one way, and it's through the door, that Jesus is the door. But what I like about that passage is anyone who enters this way, anyone who enters this way, he will be saved. So as So what the Bible says all the time is that Jesus is the only way to salvation. There's no other way. You will not find anywhere in the Bible that it says there's any other way. He achieved access to God for us. Verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God... Go back to Hebrews 7, 26, where he says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He was separated from sinners. But he never kept away from sinners. You know, that's why all the Pharisees were mad at him. Most of the problem wasn't with what Jesus was saying. It was who he was saying it to. He was saying it to people like you and me. The trash of society. That's who Jesus spoke to. And the Pharisees had a problem with that. Because you were a sinner if you hung out with sinners. And remember, sinner in them days was a class of people. That's why it says sinners and tax collectors in the parable of Luke, in Luke 15. Because tax collectors were even worse than sinners. They were like sinner sinners. I don't know. We just say sin, 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 sin. We we like, but take it into the context of the time. And sinners were a class of people. And Jesus hung around sinners. I love the fact that the group of men that he chose to be his disciples were a bunch of people like me. I love that fact. I love the fact that he had people that nobody would ask to be on their team. You know... You know when, back in the day when, when they would pick teams and you'd, 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 the two best sports players or best people, whatever you was playing, would be up front and they would be picking teams. And you'd be going, I hope I get picked. I hope I get picked. Well, I did anyway, because I wasn't good at very many sports. Unless you had to hurt somebody, I wasn't good at it. So, so maybe I should have grown up in America and played football, but... I didn't, so there weren't many sports that I really was good at. Soccer, you didn't have to kick somebody in the shins and take the ball from them, so they never picked me because somebody was going to get hurt. 
So, but, but Jesus picks them people first and says, I want them on the team. I call them people to, to serve me. I'm going to teach those kind of people. And the Pharisees had a problem with that. See, even though he, he was separate from sinners because he did not sin, he hung out with sinners. This priest is a holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners and higher than the heavens. Think about it. We have a God, Jesus, who is in touch with our feelings and our weaknesses. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, we have a high priest that knows about temptation. He knows about sin. And then, when you get saved, he gives you the spirit to help you with that. He's personal. Two, verses 22 and 23 says... Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, with an evil conscience, uh, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. See, we need to, we need to draw closer to God. I actually think this is a problem in Christianity today that we're drawing away from God and not drawing to God. That, that, that we've stepped away from reading our Bibles. We step away from praying. We step away from believing that Scripture is the ultimate authority and it is the solo Scripture. Everything has to be line up with Scripture. Okay, that was what the Reformation was born on, that, that we hold this up, that it is truly the Word of God. I believe you believe that or you don't believe in God. I believe this has to be God's Word or it's just a bunch of garbage. Believe the same thing I said when I got saved. I used to think this was a bunch of I said crap, and, they, and I didn't say crap when I said it in church because I didn't want to say the word crap in church, right? So I said, I, when they asked me to share my testimony, I said, I think the Bible's a bunch of crap that people have written down and made up stories. Well, so when I cleaned it up for my baptism, when they asked me if I professed faith in Jesus, I said, yeah, and then I said, I used to think, the Bible was a bunch of folk stories and made up. Guess how much I, of the Bible I had read? Zero percent. How can I judge something I've never picked up? Everybody does it. Everybody does it. Most people that probably go to church don't read their Bible. That's sad. 
Because this is how we get to know who God is. And then we realize that then we can hold on to the profession of our faith without doubting God. Because we can see, if we read Scripture, that God is a God who keeps his promises. Genesis 3.15, he makes a promise that he keeps. We could go through the whole of the Bible and say, God made this promise, God kept this promise. God made this promise, he kept this promise. God is faithful to the end, and we need to remember that. Verses 24-25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as, it, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, we are to encourage one another. What we need to not is, we, we need to not forget that the church exists for a reason. Okay? It's God's invention not man's, okay, to me at church. See, he, whoever wrote this, the book of Hebrews, is saying how important it is to belong to a local church. To be a part of a church family. Don't neglect that. Don't take that as, Oh, that's something I can do. It's something we should do. We should meet. We should get together. We should get together and pray. We should become a family. We should do things together. We're a church. He's saying, don't neglect that. Encourage one another. So if we see brothers and sisters that aren't coming to church, it's not just my responsibility to see that. I mean, it's pretty easy when you only have a church this size to know who doesn't come and does come. That's, by the way, (laughs) I'm not picking on you, Crystal, promise. Uh, This just happened to be the message that you came to. Remember that. God always has a purpose. Okay? So, you can go to a mega church. There's mega churches in Rockford, and nobody will notice if you go or don't go. I've been to one. Nobody knows. You might have one or two people that go, oh, they're not here this week. But the church in general doesn't notice one or two people ain't going to make a difference. A hundred people probably ain't going to make a difference. That's why people like big churches, by the way. Because you can hide in a big church. You can't hide in a church this size. So, in a church this size, it would be easier for me to notice who's here and who's not. Because I'm standing in front of you all. But if this sanctuary was full, it'd be really hard for me. 
So it's not just my responsibility. We're all supposed to hold each other accountable. We're all supposed to go, oh, this person didn't come this week. Let me check up on them and see whether... I've been doing a poor job of this, so I don't expect you to have done a better job of this. But I'm, I'm confessing that as I'm studying this passage, I'm going, this is something that we're supposed to do. We're supposed to encourage people. So we're supposed to say, hey, so-and-so wasn't here this week. I need to make a phone call. They might be fine. They might just have overslept. They might have not changed their clocks. Because that happens. They should have been an hour early like a couple people. But, but, they didn't show up. But we, we contact them and say, hey, how are you doing? Is there something happening? Are you struggling? Is there some, is some reason you, you're not at church today? Get involved in each other's lives. Be a family. Hold each other accountable. That is what he's saying. It's important that we hang out together and worship the one true and faithful God together. This isn't to to say, I believe if you're working, I understand. But if you're not working, I'd be... I came to church Wednesdays before I became the pastor of the church because I thought it was, me personally, I need it, okay? But then I'm thinking in my head, if you want to grow as a a family, you hang out together. And like this Wednesday night, I'm telling you, it's been going great. There was 21 people here on Wednesday night praying. I think that's pretty good. I think that's really good that 21 people were in this church praying together. And we've got so many prayer requests, we get out about 8 o'clock. And we've not been later than 8, but we've gone to 8. And because I'm not going to stop in the middle of a prayer, I'm telling you that much. But, but it's, it's amazing. And we've seen, as we've come together, prayers being answered. And do you know what else I've, I've, I've noticed? I found out stuff about people in this church that I've been coming to for nearly 20 years that I didn't know. I mean, I'm going to just put your... Russ, I, I mean, Benny, and your other three grandchildren from, from Bridget and Adam, okay, and then the two that... that, that and what's the other girl's name? Because I never got the... the, she, the yeah. Anaya, they're the, they're the two that he adopted. What's your three grandchildren's names? Because I was dumb and didn't ask your daughter. Oh, the other two yeah. Eddie, Eddie Bella, Bella, and Braden. Well, I didn't know, by the way, that they even adopted kids. Right? And it's like, I love this. I love the fact that prayer night is helping me to get to know my congregation better, is what I'm trying to say. So I think it's a good thing. I'm promoting Wednesday night, and we only have one left. But we're going to be back in January, and we're going to have a special one in December. So, I just want to say to you, I think I've been blessed because I've been here at the prayer meeting listening. When, when we start talking about prayer requests and, and p- about prayers, we talk about our people because we feel more comfortable at that, that setting, uh, and we find out more and more about people's family, and it's so amazing. 
And that's what church is about, is finding out about people that, that come to church. Not just knowing them, hi, how are you doing today? But actually getting to know people. Psalms 122.1 says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Wouldn't it be awesome if somebody said to you, Kay, come to church, and you said, I was glad because somebody invited me to go praise God with them. Our access was provided. 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fearing of fire that will consume the adversaries. The New Living Testament says it this way. If we keep on sinning because we want to, after we have received and know the truth, There is no gift that will take away the sins then. Instead, we will stand in front of God and on that day, he will say, we are guilty. And the hot fires of hell will burn up those who work against God. See, here's the problem. Verse 20. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. You see, those breaking Moses' law suffered death because they haven't truly accepted Jesus as their Savior. See, Deuteronomy, Numbers 15 30 says, but the person who does anything with a high high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reveals the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people. And Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 6 says, if there is found among you, within any of you, your towns, that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, in transgression, his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them for or the sun or moon or any of the hosts of heaven which I have forbidden. And it is told, you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness." This is what the punishment of sin was, by the way. I'm glad, by the way, I didn't live in those times. I wouldn't have made it very long without being in the, out on the gates, being stoned to death. 
He's trying to make a point here. And he goes on. Well, he said, the point is, sorry, verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profound the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? See, great punishment will fall on those who have rejected God's way of salvation. People who say, I don't believe that Jesus covers my sins. I've got to earn it. Don't really believe in Jesus. If you think you have to earn salvation, you don't believe of the Jesus that is written about in this book. That is sitting on a throne right now, interceding for those who do believe. You have to believe that God's way of salvation is the only, the only way of salvation. Verse 30. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will pay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. Here's the thing is, people say, well, why is God so angry? Or they say, why does God not just say everybody's forgiven? Okay. But God has to judge because God is God. So at the end of time, there's going to be a judgment. And sometimes we're being judged here. People who don't follow Jesus are allowed to seep and sit in the sin that they live in until they get to a place where they can see the only way out is Jesus. And Jesus comes into their life and changes them from the inside out. And that thing, that quote from what he says, vengeance is mine, is from Deuteronomy 32, 35 through 36, where he says, vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone. And we've got to remember, God will judge, but his judgment is fair. So if I don't have Jesus, if you don't have Jesus, he's going to judge you for you. But if you profess your faith in Christ, and you believe that he is the only way, and that his blood has washed you clean, you will stand there probably shaking. But he will say, you are forgiven, my son, my daughter. You are forgiven. You are accepted. Not because you've done something, because my son did it for you. 
He paid for your sin when you couldn't. When you tried to earn his favor, when you tried to earn salvation, you are spitting in Jesus' face and saying, you're not enough, Jesus. You're not enough. Verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It would be, it is a terrible thing when we disobey God and then we have to face him. That is why we have a hard time. And, and, and it took me longer, longer, a long time to come to this realization that God already knows what a dumbass I am. Right? And, and says, hey, I understand you did that. He knows that. So why do I have trouble going to him and confessing the stupidity of my life to him and asking him to forgive me? Why? Why do we have such a hard time? We think we sin behind his back when he sees everything that we do. My thing is it should be so easy, so easy to go to him. Go to him and say, God, I really messed up today. Forgive me. And the the funny thing about it is, you've already been forgiven. But you need to do that part of it. Because you have to realize that you've sinned against a holy, perfect God. Not because you have to, because he already knows. But you should do it because it's going to change your heart. It's going to take, if you don't confess your sin and you keep repeating it over and over again, do you really believe what was said? You're disobeying God. Our access appreciated. Verse 32 and 33. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. He's saying, remember that your Christian belief will bring persecution. We live in a society, I think it's important that we, we pray for our politicians. I think it's important to vote for politicians that, that, that line up to what you believe. But, but I also believe that God will put whoever he wants in power, in power. Okay? And I believe that more has happened in the world when Christians have been persecuted, just so you know where your pastor's heart is, I think more people meet Jesus when Christians are persecuted than ever when life is easy. Whenever 
life is easy. Because when we're at bottom, that's why this thing that's happening in Ukraine and with Russia, and people are leaving Ukraine to get out, and they're going to Germany, because we just had, a, had this, this August, we had uh, people come from Chosen People Ministry, and they, they were talking about how so many people were coming to Jesus. Not because everything was going smoothly. People came to Jesus because life sucks. So they know, wow, if this is so bad, there's got to be something better than this. And then they go, when you are a Christian and you're not scared to witness in that situation, you talk about God and how great he is. And they meet Jesus. I don't know who the communist leader of China was at the time, but when they kicked all of the missionaries out of China, okay, and said that it was illegal, illegal to meet as a church, and the church had to go underground, guess what happened to the church? It went boom! Another story. Russia. When Russia said, you can't meet at the churches again, they took the other approach. Uh, They were forced not to meet at their big cathedrals, so they stopped worshipping altogether. I mean, there's still a church in Russia, okay? But it didn't grow like the church in China, because the church in China went underground. And, 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 And so many things have happened in different countries, like, hey, you... It's illegal to meet, to, to try and stop churches from flourishing. It's illegal to meet any more than 10 people in your house. So what happens when you're building a church and there's only 10 people? You've got 10 people and somebody brings the 11th person. One of you leaves and plants another church. Okay? Actually, because of what that prime minister, whatever they call him in China... Uh, did that, he is probably, because people will say, who's the biggest evangelist, evangelist of the 20th century? And he would be considered the biggest evangelist and he didn't preach God and didn't like God. He brought more, more people because of his, his uh, decision to make it illegal to be a Christian, more people became Christians. So I believe, personally, This is me. Bring it on. Make it illegal. Make us pay taxes. Whatever you have to do. Burn me. Whatever. I'm going to preach the gospel till I die. But that's how we should live. People are going to hate you because you live in a simple, broken world. That's why I believe that we should build a family of believers so we can stay strong. That's why I believe the way I believe. Because I think if we can get together and become a strong group of people, we can help the community whether they want it or not. It's not about getting praise. He's the one going to give us the praise. 
We are going to be persecuted in this lifetime for being a Christian. And if you're not, you're not being a very good Christian. Not everybody's going to agree with you. All of his disciples didn't agree with him. So why would everybody else agree with him? And you believe what he says, don't you? Verse 34 says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourself had a better possession and an abiding one. See, people suffered with Paul, knowing there was a reward in heaven. God can take it all. He can let the people in your life take it all. He allows it to happen. Are you still going to love God as much if he takes away your children? If he takes away your spouse? If he takes away your house? If he takes away your car? He takes all your money out of your bank account. Are you still going to love him? As much as you love him today. Because that's what the early church was born on. Romans 8.18 says this. Paul says this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Verse 35 and 36. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive that what is promised. We need to not lose our faith. Because, like I said earlier, God can't lie. He can't lie. He tells the truth all the time. And verse 37. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Soon, by the way, when I say soon, I'm talking God's soon, not our soon. Soon, He will be coming back. Maybe in my lifetime, maybe before the end of the day. But Jesus is coming back. He is coming back. Do you want to be ready when he comes back? Or do you want to be taking a nap? Because I think the world, when it comes to Christianity right now, is taking a nap. We need to change that. John 14, 1 through 3 says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may also be. That is a day that I personally am looking forward to. Jesus showing me my new room in heaven. 
I think that is just going to be an awesome day when I get to meet Jesus. I'm going to fall on my knees. I know I'm going to flat face. I don't deserve this. I mean, when, when people say, I don't know what I'm going to, I fit flat face. Everybody that's, see, this is what I go. Everybody in the Bible that's ever met God in any shape, way, or form, flat faced. They can't look at God. And I think then God's going to say, hey, get up, my son. It's okay. Jesus paid for your sin. You're clean. And hopefully then he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. But I'm working on that part. So, verse 38. But my righteousness, but my righteousness, one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We're to live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4 says this. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. See, if we backslide, if we backslide, not, we do not please God. See, what backsliding is, is when we go backwards and we don't realize we've gone backwards. We don't say anything about going backwards. And then we think we're going to move forward again without repenting of what we did. That's being an unrepentant Christian. And I don't actually think them two words go in the sentence. Because I don't think you can be an unrepented Christian. I don't think you can be a Christian that doesn't repent of their sins. Because I don't think the Bible says we can be Christians that don't repent of our sin. So that's what he's talking about here. Backsliding. That we backslide and we take no note of our backsliding. And we just go backwards and we don't care. And we just start moving forward like nothing ever happened. We do not please God when we go that way. Verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But of those who have faith and preserve their souls. See, those who turn their backs on God steal their faith. There's been many people over the years that have said, I believe in Jesus. They've actually come forth like at a Billy Graham concert or at church and they've professed their faith and then they leave and they go live their life and they probably don't step foot of church again or they go to church for a while then they stop coming and they, they say, well, I said the sinner's prayer, I'm saved. I can live however I want and God still loves me. Their thing that God still loves them is absolutely true. They did not ask for forgiveness of their sins because then they went and did exactly what they did and never asked again for forgiveness of their sins. That is what repentance is. See, A.W. Tozer talks like this about backsliding. Sometimes evangelical Christians seem to be fuzzy and uncertain about the nature of God and his purpose in creation and redemption. In such instances, the preachers often are to blame. There are still preachers and teachers who say that Christ died so we would not drink and not smoke and not go to the theater. No wonder people are confused. 
No wonder they fall into the habit of backsliding when such things are held up as the reason for salvation. Jesus was born of a virgin. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, died on a cross, and rose from the grave to make worshippers of rebels. We are, them, we are those rebels that he came to save. So, this passage not only deals with our approach to God, it also speaks of, the, of, our, the, of resisting truth and backsliding. When we make up our own truth instead, because we don't like what the Bible says about a, a certain topic, it warns of losing or letting slip those things necessary to us to have lived the Christian life. John speaks of backsliding on John 6, 66. After, these many of those, after this, many of his disciples turned their back and no longer... And no longer worked with him, walked with him. Because they didn't like what he was teaching, they turned away from him. And Paul tells of Demaeus backsliding in 2 Timothy 4.10 when he says, For Demaeus, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He deserted Paul because he was in love with the world. When we sin, when we sin, we are saying we are in love with what the world can give us. We are saying, God, you're not enough. I mean, when we say that out loud, it sounds ridiculous when we say, God, you're not enough. He's God. But every time we sin, we are saying, God, you're not enough. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn called, Weary of Wandering. Did I say it right, honey? That's with an A, not wandering, wandering. From, God, from my God. The chaplain, a few years later, at Glasgow Prison, he found a young woman, 18 or 19, standing in her cell with a hymn book in her hand. And she looked up at him and holding it out, said to me, said to him, talking about the chaplain, this is a hymn which I am much to un up we, that is, torn up with in America. Okay, because it's in, it's in like their Scottish accent. I read the first two lines and found my eyes filling with tears as I looked at her and said, are you weary of wandering from God? The answer was yes, indeed I am. Thereupon I had the great privilege of dealing with an anxious soul. The next Sunday, we not only sang the hymn, But I I preached specially to weary wanderers. The following day, an old man grasped my hand as I entered his cell. And in an earnest and solemn voice said this. When that great day comes, 
there will be found a soul among the redeemed. Brought there through that hymn we sang yesterday, for he continued when you read, read out. Weary of wandering from my God, I said, that's me. I'm weary and I'm ready to return. And he added, come back to, to my God, I have. In, verse, in the verse 2 of that song, Charles Wesley writes this, O Jesus, full of truth and grace, more full of grace than I of sin, yet once again I seek thy face upon thy arms and take me in, and freely my backslidings heal, and love the faithless sinner still. That is a verse of repentance. God, I keep running from you. I want you and you alone. Because if I have you, everything else will fall into place. Everything else will be the way it's supposed to be. If I make you and you alone number one in my heart. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you came and died a life that we could not live and died a death that we all deserved. You're an amazing, amazing God. You made a way for us when we didn't deserve it. You saved us when we were so low at the bottom. God, and we are all in here weary, wondering, Just fill our hearts with grace. Fill our hearts with your love. Help us to hold you as our number one. Knock ourselves off of the throne of our lives, God. Because that's what happens when we turn our back on you. We, we get back on the, on the throne and put a prophetic crown on our head. And say, God, we're going to rule over our lives. And we're saying, God, what you, did do, what you did wasn't enough. Help us to realize that you are enough. What you did was enough. And that we can live a life that reflects what we believe. And we can, in this church, become a family of believers that support and love each other. And also that we can reach the community and the world around us. In your name we pray. Amen.